of whether or not I should show that video to you because I try to watch it without crying and I can't. But I wanted to show you that video because whether you have children or not, there's something deep and moving that we can all relate to as we watch that. The joy, the sadness, the pain. As a father of two girls and two boys, I've experienced all those things many times over. But the part that I identify with most strongly is when the dad is on his knees. And not because he looks super spiritual with his Bible in his hand. But because it conveys the utter helplessness that we feel when we want to help our kids. But we can't. And we're faced continually with our own inability and weakness as parents and people. Mina and I have been parents for 25 years, and as we've grown older and more experienced at the task, I don't know that we've become better parents. I think what it is is we've just become more aware and hopefully more honest about how much we need God to uphold us and to cover our mistakes. You see, we all believe that we're perfect parents until we have children. (laughs) And we all have perfect children until they sin and they disappoint us. But like marriage, God uses children and parenting to unbalance us and to humble us so that we learn that the heart that often requires the most change is is not theirs, but it's our own. In our struggle to love them and bless them and be great parents, we often try to bear the weight that only Jesus can handle. There's good news today. The good news is that while you and I are not perfect parents, Jesus is. And when we finally come to admit that, that's where God meets us. Because that's when we become like our children and we turn to the one that we really need. Our passage today certainly has things to say about children and how we parent them. And I think it has more to say about the person of Jesus and why he wants us to come to him. And even though a large part of what I have to say today is to parents, I don't want you to tune out if you don't have kids or if your kids are all grown up. Instead, I invite you to eavesdrop on this conversation and just think about how these things might apply to you as well. Today, I want to show you three things from the passage about why Jesus is the one we need. He's the one we need because he loves us infinitely. He's one we need because he's our ultimate blessing. He's the one we need because he's our inexhaustible hope. So to recap what's happening in our text, Jesus has just finished his teaching on marriage and divorce. And that's what Mike spoke on last week. And it appears that in the middle of their discussion, parents start bringing their children to Jesus in order that he might bless them. And as they're doing this, the disciples rebuke the parents, and they keep the children from coming to him. But Jesus sees what's happening, and he says, no, instead, come, let them come to me. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event in their Gospels, but we're not explicitly told the reason why they rebuke the parents. But we are told that Jesus wasn't happy. See, when they did this, Mark tells us that Jesus was indignant and he was exasperated with them. 
To better understand what's going on, you need to know that this was a common custom. See, in those days, parents would bring their children to rabbis to have them lay hands on them to receive a blessing. These parents are seeking a blessing from Jesus because they see in his character someone they desperately want to have a spiritual connection and influence upon their children. So it wasn't unusual for these parents to be bringing their children to him. It was just common tradition. However, there are two things that I believe are important about the context of the story that you might not be able to see right away. If you look back at Mark's gospel, the synoptics, Mark's gospel tells us that after Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, the disciples continued this discussion in someone's house. So that indicates that these parents weren't satisfied with any available rabbi in the temple. They specifically sought out Jesus at this house. The second thing is, although children were loved by their parents, they weren't universally loved within the culture. This is because children were considered only to be consumers with nothing of value to add or contribute to society. So as these parents start bringing their children to him, the disciples just disregard them because they're seen as nothing more than an irritation and a disruption in their lives. What I love about this account is the fact that all three disciples, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record this for us because they want us to see the irony in their attitude and their actions. What they see as an unwanted disruption is actually a divine appointment that Jesus uses to teach them. The disciples may have no love or concern for these people, but Jesus does because he loves us infinitely. I don't doubt that every single parent in this room loves their children immensely. But you and I can't love our children like Jesus does. Jesus loves our children infinitely. And I know that's a hard concept to grasp. Because we usually just think of love in terms of how we love and not how God loves. So to help us understand the vast difference between God's love and our own, I think it's helpful to consider God's infinitude. That in all that God is, he has no limit. He's boundless. And this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to convey when he said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. One theologian also speaks of God's infinitude this way. He says, Whatever God is, he is infinitely so. And whatsoever conception comes into your minds, we should say, This is not God. God is more than this. So as great as you and I can imagine how much God loves us and our children, we need to remember it's infinitely more than that. It almost sounds silly to say something as obvious as Jesus loves and values children, but it needs to be emphasized because there's such a stark contrast between the world that we live in in the way that God loves and values the people he created. Now, we'd like to believe that we're a society that loves and cares for children, but in our culture, we know this isn't true. We see evil examples 
of contempt and hatred against children. We have to mourn over the countless numbers of children subjected to human trafficking and all sorts of abuse. And worse yet, as a society, we dehumanize these precious human beings by calling them something other than babies. Because everybody loves babies, right? But when those babies are seen as an inconvenience and a disruption that threaten our lives of comfort, of self-rule, of self-determination, then we call them something else. We call them a fetus. We call them an embryo or a clump of cells. Because the more we dehumanize someone, the more we try to justify our mistreatment of that person. The irony is that you and I have been given life and breath by our sovereign God, but that we would deny someone else that same grace simply because they threaten our ability to consume more and to maximize our happiness. Just as Isaiah prophesied to Israel, we are the clay telling the potter that he did not make us. And we blinded ourselves to God's sovereignty. So we need God to help us see ourselves and others the way that he does. We need God to help us feel what he feels and to want what he wants for our children. In his infinite love, God communicates through King David in Psalm 139. He says that he formed our inward parts and knit us together in our mother's womb. That our frame was not hidden from him when we were being made in secret, and that his eyes beheld our unformed substance, which means that God knew us and loved us even before an ultrasound or an early pregnancy test. But I also want you to consider how Jesus came to save us. In his incarnation, Jesus could have come to save us in any way he wanted. He could have come as a full-grown man. He could have come as a toddler. But it says something profound that he didn't just appear out of thin air, but that he was conceived just like you and I were. See, God is communicating something. He's communicating to us that life doesn't happen by accident or random chance, but by his sovereign hand. So don't ever let someone call you or someone else an accident or a mistake. Because you're not. God reminds us in Psalm 8 that we are the crowning glory of his creation. Every person that God has formed with his hands, whether or not they made it outside the womb, is made in his image. And if we're made in his image, we have infinite value, infinite dignity, and infinite worth. God loves our children infinitely. But I need to stop and say that I recognize that there are millions of people who've either had an abortion or been part of a decision to have one. And you may be here today. You may have been living with this guilt and this pain for a long time. And if that's you, I want you to hear this. God not only loves and values that unborn child... But he loves and values you and he wants to forgive you whether or not you knew what you were doing. You see, you and I cannot outsin God's grace and mercy. 
And just like this story, Jesus wants us to come to him without being hindered. Jesus is the one we need because he loves us infinitely. And we also come to Jesus because he's the ultimate blessing. But we need to understand what it means to be blessed. Because it's one of those words that's used so flippantly in our culture that it's drifted far away from its biblical meaning. It used to always be connected to God, but today our culture equates blessings with being an American, with hashtag signs, with the accumulation of wealth. But I don't think that's the kind of blessing these parents are seeking. And I don't think that's the kind of blessing Jesus ultimately wants to give our children. So I'd like to point us back to the Beatitudes where we're introduced to this idea of being blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Although blessing does include the idea of being happy, the Beatitudes expand this idea to its ultimate sense so that we understand that God's blessing is referring to something eternal and not just temporal. That as followers of Christ, we not only experience God's favor and presence now, but we're going to enjoy it for all of eternity. So there are many blessings found in the scriptures, but there is no blessing greater than the kind of blessing we find in Psalm 144. It's here David said, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Or Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon describes the ultimate blessing this way. He says the most pleasant pleasures of the world are the first to expire as men grow old. But no man outgrows his God. And what he was saying is that the greatest blessing we can have is not the blessing of things, but it's the blessing of God himself. So think about this. The greatest good, the greatest kindness, the most loving thing that we could ever do for our children is to bring them to Jesus. He's the one we need. He's the ultimate blessing. So as these children are being brought to him, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. He wants to bless them, but his disciples are a hindrance to that blessing. And when Mark says he was indignant, we understand it as Jesus being pained and grieved at their actions because they still weren't getting how his kingdom works. See, it grieved Jesus because the disciples were being trained as ambassadors of his kingdom. And if you're an ambassador, you're placed in a foreign land to represent the interests of the king and his kingdom. Now, what they should be doing is reflecting the heart of their king in such a way that it draws people to Jesus. But by turning these children and their parents away, they're representing their own selfish interests and not the message of the king. There's something really wrong with this. Remember who these men were. They weren't people of position, of status, or power. 
They were no more deserving of being in the presence of Jesus than these children and their parents. And yet, they have contempt for them. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they want us to see something here. They want us to see that what grieves Jesus deeply is when we receive his abundant grace, but then we turn around and we withhold it from someone else. We are ambassadors of grace to our children, but like the disciples, when we withhold it from them, we misrepresent the king and we hinder them from coming to Jesus. And I wonder if there are ways that you and I do this to our children, to our spouse, to our co-workers, or maybe even to members of this covenant community. Maybe it's hard for us to see, but think about how God parents you and me. Are you and I as patient and forgiving and kind and merciful to others as God is with us every day? Parents, how about in the area of discipline? And let me be the first to confess to you of how guilty I am and have been of withholding grace from my own children. I can't tell you the number of times I've thought or said something to one of my kids in anger and judgment. Yes, I get angry and I judge just like you do. And as the first word is coming out of my mouth, the Holy Spirit reminds me, that I'm guilty of the exact same thing that I'm condemning them for. See, I think we have this love-hate relationship with grace. We love receiving grace when we're the ones in desperate need of it. But we hate giving it to someone else as quickly and as easily as we receive it from God. The gospel reminds us that you and I are not gatekeepers. We're conduits of the love and the grace of God to our children and to others. We can also withhold grace and the blessing of Jesus from our children in our lack of discipleship, spiritual apathy. So I think it's important to see the example of these parents who are bringing their children. As I mentioned earlier, this scene takes place in someone's house. So the seeking of this blessing from Jesus is not a coincidence. They want their children to receive this blessing from Jesus, and they're determined to get them to him. Now, a couple years ago, I was with my family at O'Hare, and we were boarding our flight, waiting to board our flight. And since we had some time before the takeoff, I thought I would just use the restroom and get a snack before the flight. So as I was walking toward the bathrooms, I begin to pass this sports bar. And as I get closer, I start to see somebody who looks really familiar to me. Then I start to get really excited because I realize it's one of my sports heroes. It's Hall of Fame baseball player Jim Tomey. So I glance over at him and I make sure that that's really him. And it was him. And I thought to myself, wow, so cool. I just saw Jim Tomey. But then I had this crazy thought. I said, you know what? It's not good enough that I just saw him. This guy's my sports hero. He's right here. I still have time before we get, get, get on the plane. 
So I forgot about going to the bathroom and getting my snack, and I made this U-turn in that turnstile of the bathroom at O'Hare, and I slowly got closer to where he was, and I worked up enough courage to introduce myself. And I said, dude, you're one of my all-time favorite White Sox players. So we shook hands, and we had this conversation. We laughed. He even let me take a selfie with him. So cool, right? So I run back to the gate area to share this exciting news with my family. And to make sure they knew I wasn't joking around with them, I said, he's right there. He's right there. I met him. That's Jim Tomey right there. And you know how they reacted? They said, oh, that's nice, Dad. (laughs) And they just went back to using their phones and their tablets. Now, clearly, their reaction to his presence was a lot different than mine. They were only in the vicinity of Jim Tomey. I actually talked to him. I shook his I took a selfie with him. See, I can, took, I, I can share all those details with you in that experience because I wasn't satisfied with just being around Jim Tomey. I was determined. I was intentional and some might say desperate, in my attempt to meet him. These parents are intentional about bringing their children to Jesus Christ because they see something in his character and in his nature that convinces them they don't want to miss this opportunity of having their children be blessed by Jesus. But I wonder if we have the same intentionality and desperation For our children. Do we really believe that above all the other things that we could be doing with our kids or giving to them, that the greatest good we could do for them is to bring them to Jesus? And that the greatest harm we could do is to keep them from him? Let me ask it another way. Do you really want your children to know Jesus? Or are you content that they just know about him. You see, when we have faith and confidence that the greatest blessing our children can have is to know him, this changes how we pray too, doesn't it? Think about how you pray for your kids and what you pray for them. Would it impact the kingdom and the lives of others who don't know Christ if the prayers that we prayed for our children were all answered yes? Or would it merely increase the happiness and the comfort of our kids here on earth? If the answers to our prayers were all answered yes, would it increase the glory of our family name? Or would it increase the glory of his name and his kingdom? As a father of four, I know what it's like to spend a lot of time worrying about how our kids are going to make it in this life. And because we love them so much, the temptation is to make things comfortable, to make things as pain-free as possible for them. See, we don't want them to miss out. We don't want them to stick out. We don't want them to be left out of anything. And so the temptation is to fill their lives with a lot of things, but then fail to give them the most important thing. The danger is that those good things may crowd out the intentional discipleship of our children because we think we have plenty of time with them. 
But regardless of our good intentions, remember this. We always make time for what's first. Think about your schedules. You always make time for what's first. Back in the 60s, Charles Hummel published a little booklet entitled Tyranny of the Urgent. And in this booklet, he describes the constant tension between things that are really important and the things that are urgent. His point was that unless we prioritize what's truly important, all the lesser things start to move to the top of our to-do list. And those become urgent things that we work and stress. And before we realize it, we fail to do what's most important. So what or who wins out in your home? What comes first? Maybe a better question to ask is who or what is your ultimate hope? Who's your child's ultimate hope? You see, you you and I can't be that for our children because we're weak. We're inconsistent. We're going to fail them many times over. We can only mirror his love and be conduits of his grace. We can only love them imperfectly and bless them at best inadequately. And sadly, we've had a failing grade ourselves according to our own parental standards. But when we can finally admit this and come to Jesus with our children, we'll find that he is our inexhaustible hope. And Jesus tells his disciples, let them come and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now other translations say, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, the kingdom belongs to those who are like them. To those who possess a childlike faith. And what Jesus is pointing to is humility, dependence, and trust. See, children remind us of the kind of people that Jesus is calling to his kingdom. Now, don't confuse what he's saying here. He's not saying that you have to be childish. He's saying you have to be childlike. And this has to do with our attitudes and the disposition of our heart. Because the problem is not just that we view children wrongly, but that we view ourselves wrongly first. See, we have no problem understanding that children are weak and needy and helpless. But Jesus is telling us that the only real spiritual difference between us and our children is that they know how dependent they are, and they're willing to admit it. We need Jesus as much as our children do. But do you and I really believe that? Mark and Luke record that Jesus also added this statement. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. But this isn't as easy as it sounds, is it? Because we're hardwired for achievement. And so when Jesus turns that paradigm around and he says you can't achieve your way into the kingdom, that you must receive it, we're disoriented. Because we don't normally live that way. Grace disorients us because Jesus reverses the order. And he says he loves and accepts us before we even have a chance to obey him. But grace also offends us 
Because if we receive it like a child, it reminds us that we're needy. It reminds us that we're not the ones in control. It means that you and I have to depend on someone else. It means we have to wait on someone else to act. It means we have to trust in their promises and put our hope in them instead of ourselves. The reason we often reject grace is because we think achieving allows us to control the outcomes and to dictate the terms. You see, achieving gives us a false sense of control. What's one of the most common temptations that we face as parents? It's worry, right? We worry about their health, their safety, their happiness, and their future. We even worry if we're fulfilling the expectations of being a good mom or dad. But all the things that you and I worry and obsess about, they're temporary blessings. Things that are eventually going to be destroyed, lost, or become irrelevant in time. Now, deep down, we know that worry accomplishes nothing. And yet, we still worry. Because, let's admit it, we're control freaks. This is just another way that we try to be our own gods. And we become functional saviors to our kids. And one author describes our addiction to control as that of actors in a play who think that they're directors. So picture this, that all of us in this room are in a production. We're all actors. And one of us decides they don't like how things are going. So they usurp the director's job. And then further chaos breaks out when the rest of us see this and we follow suit and we decide... We're going to determine how our role should be played. And so we all try to control the play simultaneously. If we did that, we would make an utter mess of things and the play would look nothing like how it was originally written. But that's the story of the Bible, right? We turn God's beautiful story into a tragedy. But here's the thing that gives us hope. It gives us hope because no matter how many times we try to sit in the director's chair and control that story, he doesn't fire us. He just keeps directing us with grace and love and mercy. And the fact that he forgives us infinitely more than we can know, it's not just hope. It's inexhaustible hope. We're reminded in Lamentations 3, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. It should comfort us to know that in his mercy, God doesn't expect you and me to be perfect parents who raise perfect kids. We need to remember that we need Jesus just as much as our children. I don't think I've told you anything that you didn't already know. But I think we often forget that God is the God of infinite love. He's the God of ultimate blessing. And he's the God of inexhaustible hope. Let me close with this. A former pastor 
shares an embarrassing story that I think describes you and me as well. He writes this. On more occasions than I would care to admit in the past year, I have been late for a meeting or an appointment because I haven't been able to find my car keys. Certain that either my wife or one of my children has misplaced them, I frantically searched from room to room looking for someone to blame. Has anyone seen my keys? I'm late for a meeting. Who was playing with my keys? I put them right here on the counter, and now they're gone. They don't just vanish into thin air. Who picked them up? Where are they? I'm late. And right about the time I'm ready to order mass executions in my home, after I've taken that one last look in my bedroom, huffing and puffing, moaning and groaning, I put my hand in my pocket. And there they are. Like a clown who can't find the sunglasses perched on his own head, the keys had been there the entire time. Unfortunately, this is the way so many of us Christians live, searching high and low for something we already have, trying to earn something that we've already been given, forgetting that everything we need, we already possess in Christ. Come to Jesus. He's the one we need. As the worship team comes up, let's pray. Father, you know everything there is to know about us. You know what goes on in our heads, our hearts, and in our homes. You know the conversations that we have and don't have with our kids. You know your, our thoughts and the words on our tongue before we do. God, we need you. So would you help us to be honest before you and to admit our weakness and our need for you as our only Savior? God, continue to speak to us and to teach us. We need help to give grace freely to our children and to others. Please help us to see first how you parent us so that we might become like you as we disciple our children. We acknowledge, Lord, that our hope and our children's hope is in Christ alone, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.